It's time for our regular segment with barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers, legally speaking with Michael Mulligan on CFAX 1070. Morning, Michael. How are we doing? Hey, good morning. I'm doing great. Always good to be here. Some interesting stories on the agenda this week. I'm reading it's in a state dispute in the enforceability of an agreement between brothers, but it's an oral agreement. How does that work? Yeah, there there are several things wrapped up in this case that I think are uh, interesting concepts for people to know about because it could uh, readily affect how you're arranging your affairs, right? And in some respects, this case is also an example of perhaps how not to arrange one's affairs. And the background of it uh, was a uh, mother of uh, six uh, children, adult children, who was separated. She owned a uh, home or principal asset uh, worth uh, something just south of a million dollars. And she uh, obviously had some favorites as between the uh, children. Uh, and she... Uh, decided that she wished to uh, transfer uh, her home into joint tenancy with two of the children. And I should just pause there to comment about what joint tenancy is and what it means if somebody does that. That's pretty important. Mm -hmm. Um, There are different ways multiple people can own the same property, right? It's simple if you just own a property yourself, right? Mm -hmm. But if you are sharing it, it could be shared in a few different ways. One concept is a concept called tenancy in common. And the way that works is you could have, let's say, two friends decide to pool their resources and buy a two-bedroom condominium and share it, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, That would probably be done as tenants in common, where each of them would own 50% of the jointly owned condominium, right? If one of the uh, friends passed away, their half interest in the condominium would be divided up in accordance with their will right? Just like any other assets uh, that they might have. Mm-hmm. There's another concept called joint tenancy, which can be used where multiple people uh, share the same property. The difference with joint tenancy, let's say if you and your friend uh, purchased a condominium and you were both on title as joint tenants, if one of the two friends passed away, the other person just automatically owns all of it. Mm-hmm. It doesn't pass through their will, mm-hmm. okay? Which is a very interesting state of affairs. Yeah, Some people may use that uh, as an estate planning technique, uh, and it has a number of impacts. One of them is it might uh, avoid uh, some probate fees we have, right, because the property wouldn't go through somebody's estate. Yeah, It would just go to the other person. And that may be exactly what's intended, for example, with a, a couple, right? If you and your spouse purchase a home, that may be precisely what you intend, right? Look, if one of us passes away, obviously the other person gets the home, it carries on, all's good. But, and the other effect it can have is, and we've talked about this uh, act before, there's an act called the Wills Variation Act, where if somebody's spouse or children uh, it can apply to vary a person's will uh, if they uh, can establish that they weren't adequately provided for. Now, if property is transferred by way of uh, putting a property in joint tenancy, that doesn't apply because it's not going through the will or the estate. It just automatically goes to the other person. So that's the background. So the mother of six uh, announced that she wanted to put two of her adult sons on title as joint tenants, which would mean that if she passed away, they would each get half of it. Okay. Mm -hmm. But for reasons unexplained, the paperwork didn't get done to reflect that. Hmm. And what happened is both adult sons were put on as joint tenants for half of the property. Huh. Okay. So that's the affair. That's the state of affairs. And then sadly, the mother passes away. 
naturally what this is going to produce, right, if you have um, six children and you've disinherited four of them uh, and you've set up this uh, wonky structure, and I should say one of the children, one of the two that she liked, was the sole beneficiary of her will. Oh. <laughs> even more provocative. So naturally, litigation ensued. Yes. Um, and you wound up with the uh, the other siblings suing under the Wills Variation Act saying, hey, this should be, we haven't been provided for, mom gave everything to George was one of the uh, people involved. Uh, and so the, uh, the litigation started, and the two brothers, right, who were put on as joint tenants uh, in the course of discussing, well, what do we do about all this litigation, came to a verbal agreement uh, whereby they would uh, agree to um, share the property and provide the uh, substantial portion of the value of the home to all of the other siblings. They kind of worked it out, as would be the way to describe it. And that was the oral agreement, okay? Then what happened is the brother who was the one who was the sole beneficiary of the will changed his mind and took the position that, no, I don't want to do that, and I want 75% of the house because oh. I get 25% as being one of the joint tenants, right, automatically, yeah. and then the other 50% was mom's, which goes into the will, and I'm the sole beneficiary of it. I want all that. Too bad. And so there was a court case then about whether this oral agreement to share the proceeds of the house was enforceable. And that brings us to that concept of the oral agreement, and another important principle people should know about, which is the concept of what's called consideration. And the importance of consideration is that the law doesn't enforce bare promises to do things, oral or in writing. Like if you, if I come up to you and say, uh, you know, uh, uh, hey, Adam, a great guy, uh, you know, I'm going to give you a new car for Christmas, <laughs> right? And you say, wonderful, right? <laughs> and then I don't. You can't go to court and say, well, I'll get Where's my car? a new car. Where's yeah. my car? Right? <laughs> okay. Because what's missing from that is I've just made a gratuitous promise to you, which I may or may not follow up on, but the law isn't going to enforce it. Whether I write it down and say, I'm going to give you a car for Christmas, or I tell you that, well, you hope I follow through, but that's not a contract. I see. A contract requires a concept of consideration and exchange, right? Okay. So on the other hand, if I come to you and say, hey, do you like my car? You see, I love my I love that car. And I say, well, you're a great guy. I'll sell it to you for $100. Okay, you got a deal. Now, that's enforceable because, well, I've promised to give you the car and you've promised to give me $100. Okay. Right? Now we have a contract. So here, the brother that didn't want to share <laughs> said, well, yeah, we, 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 there's some dispute about what was said, but he said, well, that's not enforceable anyways. That was just like a gratuitous promise of a gift to my other siblings. You can't make me do that. Hmm. Uh, because there wasn't some payment of money. It's not like the other siblings say, okay, here's my $100 or my $1 or something else. It could be anything, something of value, right? Mm -hmm. And so that was the argument at trial. And then on appeal, this went to the Court of Appeal. And the trial judge and now the Court of Appeal concluded there was consideration, and the consideration came in the form uh, of the uh, brother, the mm -hmm. one to keep everything ultimately, mm -hmm. uh, taking a position on that Will's Variation application. All the siblings were like, hey, this isn't fair. Mom gave everything to you, George, <laughs> right? Yeah. And George saying, okay, I'll agree to this um, sharing the money from the house. We don't need the Will's Variation application. That there was consideration in the form of his agreement to 
how he dealt with the wills variation application. Interesting. So consideration doesn't always have to be money. It can be something like that. Interesting. And so because the court of appeal and the trial judge found it, indeed, George did have consideration for what he had agreed to do, the agreement was enforceable. And so the net result of all this is a result which could have been achieved probably a decade ago if mom hadn't come up with the idea that she was going to disinherit five of her children uh, and try to put the house in joint tenancy. If she hadn't done that, all of this litigation could have been avoided. But I should say this, had mom succeeded uh, in properly putting the house into joint tenancy, like had that been done as she had said she wanted to, uh, then the result would have been the wills variation application could have done nothing because the value of the home, which was the main asset, wouldn't have gone through the will. Yeah. And the result of that is the two brothers would have wound up with half each and nothing the other siblings could have done about it. And so you can see how those concepts could be important ones when somebody is planning their estate, particularly if you've gotten some complex fact pattern like this one, or somebody has some idea about wanting to unequally uh, you know, disinherit some children and give everything to one person they like, that kind of thing. You can see how people might use those legal uh, processes and techniques to achieve that goal or to try to immunize something from being reviewed under the uh, Wills Variation Act. But here, through that complex series of things, including that oral agreement, which ultimately was enforceable, the net result is going to be after many years of litigation and wasted money, what remains uh, is going to get shared amongst the kids, which probably should have been the starting point to begin with. So there's that concept of joint tenancy and consideration, why they're so important. All right, Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Legally speaking, we'll take our first break on CFAX 1070. We'll be back with more right after this. Legally speaking on CFAX 1070 with Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Michael, the next story, am I reading this correctly? It says, standing to litigate the installation of a temporary cone on an eagle's nest you wouldn't believe it but it's true okay uh, so <laughs> this uh, one of the many reasons why we can't build nice things at least very quickly <laughs> and so this case is from ubc right and the ubc has some property around it and there's a thing called the ubc properties trust i guess can lease the land or build housing or things of that sort on it okay and uh, the ubc uh wanted to build a uh, housing development uh, on their property uh, but uh, they uh, determined that there was an eagle's nest not too far away from where they wanted to build it. It was a nice-looking nest from the description, 120 centimeters deep, 50 or fifty centimeters deep, 120 centimeters in diameter, and it was only eight meters from the top of a, a tree, so a nice-looking nest. Hmm. Uh, the nest had been there for a number of years, and it had been vacant for a few years. Apparently, the eagles aren't subject to the speculation and vacancy tax. <laughs> So the, 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 the nest had stood vacant for a while, but then in 2017, some eagles started using uh, the nest. Uh, and uh, as the development was proceeding, it was going to get too close to the recommended noise buffer, uh, buffer zone around an eagle's nest. And I huh. should mention this, if you don't know it, in order to order your affairs correctly and stay out of legal trouble. Yes. Section 34 of the Wildlife Act specifically makes it an offense to interfere with the nest of eagles. So don't bother the eagle's nest. You've got to stay back. And so uh, the uh, uh, UBC uh, applied for a permit 
to allow them to put a cone on the nest temporarily <laughs> to deter the eagles from nesting in it. And indeed, <laughs> they then built an alternative eagle's nest for the eagles. So they constructed other housing for the eagles nearby outside of the zone so they didn't bother them. Hmm. And they got their permit and they put up their cone. Uh, but... Uh, and I should say, the uh, the nest they built was apparently a, a nice nest. The eagles used it in 2020, and uh, having not succeeded in having chicks for a few years in the old nest, it worked out. They were successful. They had wow. Chicks. So good for the eagles. They, yeah. They must have, the developer must have built them a nice nest. But all of this resulted in a person who lived nearby uh, starting a campaign to uh, not allow the cone oh, on the original no. eagle's nest. And there was oh. a public... And, uh, there were stories in the paper and the media reports about it and, and all of this. And then ultimately, the person at the time who was the uh, neighbor, uh, Ryan, I take it he's male, Ryan, uh, uh, he applied for um, funding through West Coast Environmental Law and got funding. So now there's a legal help funded to oppose the cone. Uh, and so an application was brought in court arguing that the cone permit uh, shouldn't have been uh, issued. Uh, by this point, the Eagles, uh, happily, they apparently have another nest. They moved down to Pacific Spirit Park in 2022. So uh, after succeeding in the constructed nest, they were, they were in fact in the park and the cone went up, but on went the litigation. Now, when somebody wants to litigate things, not everyone is permitted to just show up in court and complain about anything they don't like. There is a concept that you have to have standing in order to challenge something, right? Hmm. You can't just randomly sue anyone for any purpose for matters that don't concern you. Oh, I see. And, one okay. of the, and so the, the courts have developed this concept of sort of when somebody should get standing. And one of the purposes of that is to screen out what they describe as busybody litigants, right? So you want people that have a, a you know an interest in something, not just anyone who likes to make waves going to court. Um, and so uh, that's the form in which this thing showed up uh, for the hearing. Uh, and the uh, first part, uh, sorry, the other thing which happened in the intervening period of time is the person who started all of this. Uh, opposition to the cone moved away. Oh, of and course. And it would appear that their interest in the cone uh, diminished, uh, having moved away from the development uh, and the cone. Uh, and so the court then had to apply the test for when do you grant public interest standing, and should this person, the previous neighbor who opposed the cone, should they be able to carry on with the help of the funding from this environmental uh, legal organization? Uh, so the first issue uh, that a judge has to think about is whether there's a serious uh, issue to be decided, right, about whether, in this case, the permit was properly issued. And the judge found that, yeah, there there was a meaningful legal issue there to be decided, and the issue was essentially whether the uh, lieutenant governor and council could properly delegate uh, authority to a wildlife uh, expert <laughs> to make the decision about the cone, right? That, that's, that's what that amounted to. So, yeah, there was a legal issue. The challenge here... The second part of the test is, does the person have a genuine interest in what's going on here? Because the other mm. problem is you don't want somebody starting some litigation on an important topic and then having just lost interest in doing a poor job of it, nor do we want people that are just kind of busybodies. And on that front, it was a bit of a struggle because the person, like, presumably after they moved away from the development, seemed to lose a lot of interest in it and, and weren't signing letters or doing anything else. And the judge described it as, 
person had minimal continuing genuine interest in the nest <laughs> or the permit after they moved away. Uh, I found that there's little evidence that the petitioner had any continuing interest or engagement with the nest uh, and provided no evidence of any steps, I guess, that she had taken with respect to the nest other than this litigation. Hmm. Right? So that one was scraping the bottom of the barrel. Uh, but the final part of the test, and they all have to be thought about together, is is there any other reasonable and effective method that the legal issue, if it's an important one, uh, can be decided, right? And the judge found on that ground there really wasn't. Nobody else was lining up to uh, advocate for the removing of the cone. Uh, and so on that test for standing, even though the person was uh, just <laughs> barely above water on the having any continued interest in the cone, and fair enough, because perhaps there were other motivations involved there with somebody who's living next to the cone, um, uh, and uh, you know maybe other intervening factors like the eagles apparently have at least a couple of other nest options and seem to be doing fine, maybe that played a role in it. But the judge found that it is discretionary, and even though that second factor, the genuine interest, was really weak, the other two uh, mitigated in favor uh, of allowing this litigation to continue. And so then on the judge went to analyze the substantive issue about uh, whether uh, there was some improper uh, delegation uh, of the power to issue the permit to put the cone up. Uh, and uh, on that uh, basis, the, the, on the merits of it, uh, the judge concluded that the cabinet had properly provided guidance to the regional manager in terms of how to exercise the cone discretion, and so that the uh, delegation was not an improper subdelegation of authority to grant the permit to put up the cone. And so the outcome of all of that uh, is uh, that the cone can stay, uh, the eagles can enjoy uh, for the moment uh, their temporary and apparently a successful nest, or the other one in the park, uh, and then uh, once this uh, housing de development gets finished, uh, they'll be able to take the cone off, and if they so desire, uh, go back to uh, this nest or, or either of the other two that are available. But through all of that, I, I must say, you know, we talk about sort of an emergency and not enough housing, and you can easily imagine how this sort of thing might slow that down. And so yeah. there yeah. it is. We have a decision. The cone was lawful, and it uh, sounds like the uh, eagles are doing well. They just have to watch out for the uh, vacancy tax uh, on the other two nests that were left behind. Oh, yeah. We have four minutes left, and the province of Alberta, it says here, fires dysfunctional city councillors. Help us understand this. Yeah, we mentioned this sort of in, in passing uh, a show or two ago uh, about sort of who ultimately bears responsibility and by what mechanism could a city councillor or councillors be removed, right? Uh, that was a, a live issue in terms of uh, Victoria City Councillor uh, Kim, um, mm -hmm. And uh, there's also, of course, uh, you know, much talk about other dysfunction in other municipalities. Um, and I mentioned that the uh, legislature, provincial legislature, would have authority to remove any of those people at any time. Uh, and this is an example of that kind of power being exercised uh, uh, just uh, last week in Alberta. Mm -hmm. uh, and so this was a case where there was a, a city uh, council, I think it was near Calgary, uh, and uh, there was uh, uh, dysfunction and uh, rancor and so on going on. Uh, and uh, there, the, the legislation which they have in place already in Alberta uh, allowed the uh, minister in charge provincially to just dismiss all those people. Uh, and so they did that. And so they're no longer the mayor and the city councillors are just gone. Uh, and it's important to remember that all of the authority that city councillors or mayors, local governments have, all of it, 
um, is entirely delegated by the province, right? We we have a local government act, and there's a special act with respect to Vancouver. And what's going on with all of these local governments is all of the powers they're exercising are entirely provided to them by the provincial government. That's where they derive all of their authority. And one of the corollaries of that uh, is that the existence of any of these municipalities and the continued service of any of these uh, councillors or mayors or anyone else uh, is entirely uh, a function of the benevolence of the provincial legislature, right? And so uh, if there is dysfunction or inappropriate behavior or uh, incompetence or any of that going on, there should be no uh, lack of clarity uh, in terms of how that and, and who uh, is permitting that to continue. Uh, it is the provincial uh, government, the province. Yes. Right? Uh, the uh, let the, anyone could or, or introduce a, a piece of legislation. It could be the, you know, John Doe Councillor Removal Act. Uh, and if that passes in the legislature, John Doe is no longer a councillor. Uh, and if you wish to, if the legislature wishes to pass legislation amalgamating things, removing municipalities, reorganizing them, firing the mayor, firing the councillor, reversing any bylaw, anything essentially they want to do, they are entirely free to do that. Uh, there is no independent um, uh, authority that any of those councillors or mayors or anyone else has. And so people should know that. Uh, where there is dysfunction and issue, but well, who bears responsibility for this? What can we do? Can we do nothing? Right? Some people are wringing their hands. What do you do if a municipality is just completely dysfunctional or can't operate, or people engage, or councillors or mayors or others engage in outrageous and offensive uh, conduct? There's a clear line of authority. Uh, and uh, when it's not exercised, it's tacit approval for what's going on. Hmm. Uh, and if there's a view that what's going on is not appropriate or they're dysfunctional or ineffective or uh, just engaged in uh, inappropriate behavior, there is a clear legal mechanism whereby any or all of them could be removed or replaced at any time. And so that's where the line of authority, that's where the buck stops, right? It stops at the provincial legislature. That's where it stops. And so... When you have somebody who's engaged in, as a counselor, outrageous or inappropriate behavior or an entirely dysfunctional council, uh, the uh, majority in the provincial legislature uh, can't uh, avoid responsibility by looking the other way and whistling. Uh, it's up to them. They're the ones who have delegated the authority to these people to carry on. And so people should know that uh, and uh, who ultimately uh, bears supervisory responsibility. It's the provincial legislature. Michael Mulligan with Mulligan Defense Lawyers, legally speaking, during the second half of our second hour every Thursday. Pleasure as always. Until next week. Thank you so much. Have a great day.